there. This is the A Lot to Say podcast, a conversation-based project focused on unconventional career paths and the projects that consume us. I'm your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as many call me. And A Lot to Say is part of the Alts Project's family of content, uh, obsessing about the overlap between creativity, technology, and culture. I'm fortunate to spend my days working alongside technologists, artists, researchers, and people who just generally give a damn about the world we live in. And I'm very lucky to be able to hear of some incredible career journeys over that time from some really inspiring people. So I am particularly energized by the projects that I hear people are experimenting and tinkering on along the way. And I thought, you know what, it's time to put these stories out there with the A Lot to Say podcast project. I can't wait for you to hopefully discover some new and lesser known stories about the things people get wrapped up in and what led them to this point. This is A Lot to Say. Welcome. This is uh, episode 19 of A Lot to Say podcast, and I'm joined on this chat by Georgia Francis King, which is really cool. Uh, a bit of a unique circumstance in terms of uh, she was in quarantine for this episode, um, being that she'd recently returned from the US and on her way to Melbourne had to stop by Sydney and, you know, hole up in a hotel room for two weeks. <laughs> we actually uh, are left in a couple of... Um, little incidents where she gets knocks on the door, et cetera, to check on her well-being as well as deliver her lunch. But um, we see the sort of humor in it, I guess. Um, on top of touching on the fact that she she talks about her work as a literary agent and also her former roles in as uh, ideas editor at Quartz and then also editor at Kinfolk magazine, we we um we go through some particulars about what 2020 has uh, has been like for her specifically, um, and that includes uh, living in New York um, in amongst a time of great um, upheaval and uh, and difficulty, I would say, uh, relating to everything from um, COVID shutdowns through to Black Lives Matter movements um, and more. So we'll touch on all of that and a lot more. We've only known each other for a short amount of time, but it was uh, really cool to use this chat as an opportunity to find out more of her backstory and uh, I guess the situation she's found herself in over the years, um, opportunities that have arisen and uh, and what she most places value in. So really cool chat. Uh, this is A Lot to Say podcast, episode 19 with Georgia Francis King. Cheers. Well, today with me on A Lot to Say podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Georgia Francis King. How are you going, Georgia? And how does it feel to, um, I guess, be on the receiving end of an interview um, for once, a little out of the norm? I'll try not to ask you too many questions. I tend to be one of those people I, I chat a bit, but I, I also love getting a question or two in myself. Um, so I'll try to keep it one-sided. But just honestly, happy to have someone to chat to because I'm currently in Sydney hotel lockdown. We we are going to chat about a whole bunch of situations that you found yourself in this year, um, and, and that's a large part of why I really wanted to chat to you. I always envision chatting to you about a lot of the um, the things that have made up your career over time, um, and it's absolutely fascinating. And we'll get into it, but then you've had this uh, let's call it a twenty twenty experience at large, which a lot of people just could not replicate. So I'll do the briefest rundown of what I've observed, but, um, you know, there might be more and we'll dive into what what it's all sort of meant to you. You were here in Melbourne um, during the, the immense bushfire season at the start of this year. Uh, I think we first met on the day that uh, Trump was impeached. You, you've been in New York during Black Lives Matter movement. 
You've also been in New York during the COVID-19 complete shutdown. You've lived through the election madness and now you're in quarantine in Sydney. This is this is a crazy year. <laughs> I, I really don't know what I could um, add to that. I know in America, a lot of us were starting to get concerned about, well, did we forget about the environment for a little while in America there? <laughs> and then the bushfire started in California. And I uh, was like, oh, yep, that's just Mother Nature rearing her head and reminding us um, that there are other elements that we need to continue to worry about on top of pandemics and politics and uh, racial injustice and such. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, let's start, first of all, how, how are you doing? Like in terms of you're in lockdown at the moment, what's the, what's the vibe and, and um, how are you feeling about it? Because I would imagine you just simply want to, you want to get home by now and how, how's the... Um, uh, I guess emotional state because it's been it's been quite a taxing year as we referenced. Honestly, the idea after the year that I've had to just be in a room by myself for two weeks uh, was somewhat enticing, and uh, I'm having a fine time in here. I mean, living through the the pandemic in New York, where we just got hit so hard, so early, and you know we were the we were the Western city that had to work it out before anyone else did, and. Yeah, absolutely. Being, being inside and, you know, the the difference between how I've seen a lot of my Australian friends uh, talk about it and uh, how we talked about it in New York at the start of the pandemic, at least, when we were all going through that phase, when we were terrified that our groceries were going to kill us in New York, <laughs> in New yeah. York, that was a really true deep fear because we had a thousand people dying a day for a month. I friend, I have so many friends who have lost family members. Um, I have neighbors die on my block. Um, mm. It, we, we experienced it in uh, the fear that we felt was completely justified uh, versus a very different version of the pandemic where um, there it, it's less about the fear of your own personal safety and more about the emotional landscape inside of being in lockdown and trying to do the right thing and uh, not getting other people sick. But so that's kind of that's prepared me basically for what I'm inside experiencing now. I got lucky. I've got a beautiful uh, harbor view here at the Marriott. Um, some of the food's better than what my local bodega will push out in New York. <laughs> Uh, no complaints for me, both physically or mentally, right now. Where's home in New York, by the way? Um, should um, ask you that first of all. Yeah, sure. I live in Bed Stuy in Brooklyn, um, and it's a uh, a neighborhood that's just starting to gentrify now. Um, majority black, uh, historically black owned. Um, in a period in the early 1900s, it was the highest uh, African Americans per capita in all of America, including even in the South. Um, nice. that kind of, it, it means that there is a lot of, uh, huge disparity issues in, in my neighborhood. And that really came into full, full, uh, plight during COVID when the food access system more or less completely shut down. And I helped, uh, start a mutual aid network that I was really involved with for the first couple of months in, um, in Brooklyn trying to get food and groceries to people who could no longer afford them. And it was uh, pretty horrible in America to see the federal government fail, the state government fail, the local government fail. And then, you know, these very, very hyper local 
networks had to pop up in order just to feed our neighbors. So in a very, in a very strange way, it actually made me feel more connected to people during that time than what I ever had in my neighborhood, uh, despite the fact that I did not want to be six feet closer to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I was going to touch upon that. Actually, um, I got the impression, uh, whether through what you've been posting on social media or what you remark upon that um, there's a decent community vibe within there. And it's quite, um, you know, I'd imagine, um, yeah, like not definitely not too much uh, strangers next door, but you're sort of almost wrapped up in others pe- other people's lives. So is that a sort of a, both a, a positive thing to have that sort of experience whilst also that's um, a little troubling, I guess, in an emerging pandemic? Yeah, that, that's like the wildest thing. I When, you know, I had the call with mum in, in late March and she's like, George, if you're, if you're coming home, you better come home now. But I felt that I could, do so much more staying in Brooklyn and help so much more. I, I said to people that, you know, New York was the armpit of COVID, sure, but you know, this is my armpit. I, I know what it smells like. I know who has deodorant. I don't mind if it gets stinky. Um, I felt personally responsible, and um, I, I live on a block that uh, when when folks from Australia visit, it's it looks like a Sesame Street block. I've got the the proper brownstone with the yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I live across from a after school care system for kids with incarcerated parents, um, of which there's a lot in my neighborhood. And they started doing free meals because a lot of the neighborhood um, could no longer feed itself, uh, free meals at 12 and three o'clock every day. And they became my clockwork. They became uh, the people that I would see every single day. And I would be out exercising, like running laps up and down my stoop. And they would be like, you know, taking the piss out of me and doing squats with me and <laughs> drop me over leftover apples. And um, they, they really became my crew. And I'd been volunteering there before the pandemic, but this was some other level of, you know, I was watching out for the neighborhood through the mutual aid network. They were doing this for their kids. Uh, And then uh, months and months later, I took a two week road trip through the South um, two months before Trump was elected. And in the middle of the pandemic, because I really wanted to see uh, the South with my with my own eyes, not just through the lens of. Um, you know, parachute journalism, um, as as I felt was happening a lot at that time. Yeah. And, and was this uh, the south of the state or south of the country? South of the country. So, you know, right. North Carolina, which everyone's very aware of after the 2020 election, you know, all all down in that, um, that the Appalachias, all down in that neighborhood. Yeah. And um, at the, uh, I'd been gone for a week. Um, oh my gosh, you were hearing a real life telephone call in my hotel room, which I literally have to pick up because it's someone asking me about my mental health. Can you hold on? For go a for second? it. Go for it. Go for it. No problem. Hold on if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> That's my daily mental health check in from a nurse. Um, when, and they know I'm fine, so I just have to go. Nope, no COVID symptoms. Nope, feeling fine. And they go, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, cool. Just tick, tick, and move on. Move on. Um, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. But, but uh, the the director of the the school called me up after a week. He called me up on a Friday, and I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was like, oh, Howard, what? Well, hi, I like what are you calling for and he was like oh are you okay 
And I just thought to myself, oh my God, what's happened to the house? Is like the house on fire or something like that? And I was like, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm totally fine. Why? And he's just like, oh, well, I, I didn't see you this week. So I just wanted to make sure that you were fine. Ah, uh, of course. Of course. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh my God, in a city like New York, where everyone claims that no one watches out for each other, here is someone on my block who just noticed that he didn't see me for a week and thought to call me. That is the level of community that developed in Brooklyn over the COVID crisis. Asking it as a question, I'll, I'll basically say like what a bit of my presumption is, um, you know, you've lived through these, you know, pretty massive experiences as, as a bunch of other people have um, throughout this year and beyond. But um, is it sort of a lot of the micro moments that are um, like most easy for you to recall from this year, like little exchanges with people like that or um, or in some of the other circumstances as opposed to, you know, oh, what do you most remember about um, during Black Lives Matter? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like is it is it just a, a, a series of micro moments that are most vivid in your memory? I think that the micro moments, when they are paired with really strong emotional resonance, like that moment of just feeling looked after by my own community and that, you know, you give and then they give back to you. There are, there are all sorts of other moments that pop to mind with that um, when you said Black Lives Matter because uh, at the end of New York starting to get itself under control, and by, by that I mean there's only 200 people dying a day, but, you know, for New York at that stage in July, um, the weather was getting nicer um, everyone was starting to go outside a little bit more. And um, then uh, George Floyd was murdered. And the first couple of days of the protest, and then going into the weeks of the protest, um, the one of the Black Lives Matter murals that are painted on the, the streets is at the end of my street. And so my street became the organizing spot where people from the surrounding neighborhoods would meet and then walk to Barclays Centre, which was the big centre in Brooklyn, and um, then often march across the bridges. And so the the I was I was also living in one of the hubs um, there and as and spent a lot of time on the streets, spent a lot of time on the streets. But many of my memories from from that time are I <laughs> I remember being part of one of the first groups of protesters that took the Manhattan Bridge. Um, and I was in the, it, it turned out that day, we we found out with news footage later that um, the group of protesters was two miles long. So like five kilometers long. Um, and we, we it's like taking down Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, yeah. And having that moment of when the cars had stopped and just the, the chants, we even stopped chanting. We were just silent because we knew it was just us and we didn't have to speak to us and getting to walk across that bridge and just thinking the, the feel, again, it was the feeling of together of community. You can't do something like that. You can't shut down a city bridge unless there is a collective consciousness involved. So I think a lot of my uh, happiest memories of what was a really, really difficult time were often the ones that really centered on community and togetherness and us looking out for each other when no one else would. That's a lovely sentiment. How about, and a thank you for that. How about on the flip side, um, you know, did anything sort of shock you during this time? Oh, I don't have to go into like the NYPD police violence stuff, but yeah. um, you know, I, 
I was I was in some I was in some pretty hairy situations. I was going to shiver. The full shiver just went down my, my body. I was in some pretty hairy situations and have seen a lot of really crazy things uh, from from that time. And I, I think that it's very different when you're experiencing and watching that kind of police brutality with your own eyes versus uh, reading about it, which was another reason why I um, really wanted to take what I recognize as a risk and went down into uh, the South um, to experience that version of America with my own eyes rather than what I was reading in news reports. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that being an Australian living in America, you, you get a kind of, uh, <laughs> a, a get out of jail free card. And I just realized that's actually with my white privilege, definitely a, a li- literal, probably get out of jail free card, um, um, compared to my black and brown brothers and sisters. Uh, but it means that I can walk into um, a little town in uh, South Carolina and start chatting to Trump supporters and they don't see me as being a threat because I'm Aussie and, you know, call that a knife, throw a shrimp <laughs> on the and, you know, yeah. Yeah. and there's, there's for some reason that resonance there. But I think it's really important that when we can, we try to experience culture for ourselves rather than secondhand um, because there's it removes the bias that comes with uh, secondhand experience and sources yeah we'll we'll dive into a, a number of aspects of your professional career up to date including what you're doing now um, and we'll reference I guess a lot of your background in editing and journalism etc so before we dive into the actual roles that you've been involved in and what you've sort of created for yourself um, Let's talk about your perception of, um, I guess, journalism with your journalism hat on. How did you find uh, that time observing it uh, while it was occurring? And did you see um, not so much around unexpected swings in media to left or right or, or so on, but what was your what was your um, feelings about it, observing it with the benefit of having been immersed in that world to a degree? Yeah, totally. I... I was an opinion journalist uh, throughout the entire Trump's presidency. So, and when I when I say that to folks, especially after the uh, the total implosion of opinion journalism following um, the Tom Cotton uh, op-ed in the New York Times and um, the New York Times opinion section kind of having to fire one of their top staff members over over it, uh, I, I definitely have some opinions on opinion journalism if you will yeah um, I I think that it's incredibly important that we try to understand both uh, both points of view I think that we uh, I, I saw my position when I was an opinion editor to try to help someone say what they were trying to say as clearly as possible but the problem is is that no matter how even-handed you can make an argument and try to educate readers about all sides, Often the way that we then reach media articles via social media or friends texting us or newsletter links, whatever it may be, it's a self-reinforcing bubble that you are going to either only hate read things or or read things that already affirm your beliefs. And so my want, my wish as a opinion editor was to try to reveal other sides of arguments to folks but I just realized that the folks I wanted to reveal those arguments to weren't listening 
and um, through, I don't think, the fault of their own. I think that the way we access media um, is a large part of the problem. But it was one of the reasons that I uh, decided to dip out of journalism in 2019. I felt that if the way that, if what I wanted to do as an editor was help create content that was really going to shift people's minds, the way that you have your mind shifted is not through a 700 word article you read on your phone. Uh, I was about to say, well, holding onto a subway pole, but no one wants to take subway poles anymore. Um, (laughs) Of course, of course. Yes. Yeah. The world's changed, hasn't it? Just simple, simple interactions and um, mannerisms are um, now almost part of a bygone era. Yeah, I, I just went to say that, which is a phrase I say sometimes. And I was like, nope, no, no, no more subway, no more holding onto subway poles. Uh, but I, I wanted to move into um, areas that I thought were going to maybe move the needle a little bit more. And this is not to say that journalism is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important. Um, I think that we, we need the watchdogs to turn over the stones and shine the lights in the dark places. But that wasn't the kind of journalism that I was in. And um, the role that I've always played is uh, I joke that I, I try to make intelligent people more intelligible. And uh, <laughs> and I wanted to see what other ways I could use that specific skill set, not a reporting specific skill set, um, but that skill set in a way that could spread those ideas to wider audiences. So what what was the um what was the outcome of that? So where did you gravitate towards and what was your inclination that the um you know the best use of your talents was? So I went freelance and I had developed this amazing stable of uh super smart creative intellectual folks uh during my time at Quartz. And a lot of those folks were starting to write books and people were contacting them and asking them to write books. So I started helping them craft their book ideas, making book proposals. I started doing what's called developmental editing. So helping people write their books, not ghostwriting, but just, you know, being the, the handholder and the first editor. And what would people need in, in that respect if you're handholding or, or even motivating them to, to let it all spill out onto paper, so to speak. What, what, um, what's a crucial role in, in that aspect? I think that often people don't realize why they're interesting. I, they, they, uh, especially if you're an expert at something, you are so close to it that you no longer know what the outside sees as the access point because you're already so down in the minutiae. So being able to have someone who has, I mean, I'm a total generalist, um, someone who has a, a very uh, narrow but wide uh, set of interests coming in and trying to help them order information in the way that a reader would want to receive it. Uh, that's one of the key things I find. Uh, I also definitely learned during my time in journalism the importance of giving people handholds. Uh, when you are trying to engage them with new ideas. So a lot of folks think that, you know, a shock or an awe or like some crazy fact that they don't know is the best way to engage someone. And that can be for a short amount of time, but it's not what keeps people engaged. I think that you need to make people feel that they uh, understand a, a story or have a personal stake in a story or an idea first 
and then you can reveal new information for them. Otherwise, I think that you create an in-group, out-group philosophy very quickly with a reader of either them not feeling like they're smart enough to engage with an idea or that that idea belongs to some other group, whether that is a different political group or a racial group or a gender group. Uh, we, we need to kind of, uh, I've just actually, uh, a quote from my first ever editor, Joe Walker at Frankie magazine, yeah. where, I, where I started my career more than 10 years ago, uh, just came to mind. Um, and she often talked about it as, uh, if you want the readers to read something, it's like giving a, a banana to a monkey. Um, they'll probably work it out. But the best way to do it is to peel the banana, mash up the banana, put it on a spoon, and then put the spoon into their mouths. Like help the reader as much as you can rather than telling them that they have to work it out themselves. Mm, okay. Yeah, no, that's a good analogy. And I, I um, no, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's excellent. So the types of people that you're working with, I, th- I saw this referenced a little bit on your uh, your website or your bio, even though we do know each other to some degree, but you're, mm-hmm. you're talking about CEOs, you're talking about um, astronauts, uh, academics, of course, was where you know, I naturally gravitated towards because I've sort of seen a number of academics that uh, are incredibly smart, but um, from the comms piece in terms of what they do are severely lacking. And um, it's obviously incredibly refreshing or special when you have people working on, say, deep technology or or solving big problems, also able to communicate really, really well to a diverse audience. So are these the types of people that you're referencing that you're sort of helping, I guess, um, put their expertise on paper? Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I I feel that a lot of the folks who have become incredibly good at what they do, they've become good at what they do because they're good at what they do, not because they're good at talking about it. And I don't think that they should be expected to be fantastic orators or fantastic science synthesizers. It's wonderful when they are, but you know, that's when that's when you need an ideas editor. That was my title when I was at Quartz, and I think that it really does help uh, illustrate the the synthesis of ideas versus you know they can have the ideas but then sometimes they need help translating them for wider audiences yeah very cool all right look we're going to dive into a few of the actual jobs and I'm, I'm sure a couple of the um the sentiments that you've expressed will will come out again in terms of i guess you know what your life's work is um, but what, what are you doing at the moment? So you are a, uh, a literary agent. Who's, who's that with? And, um, I, I guess, what does a day-to-day look like? Um, the most basic question I could ask, but what does that look like for you apart from when you're in lockdown, of course? <laughs> uh, honestly, I became a literary agent during lockdown, so I can't tell you what it's like outside of lockdown. Actually, I can. I'm having less martini lunches. Uh, yeah, than I, yeah, yeah, I probably, I probably would be because publishing is still very old and, Fogarty and heritage like that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I became a literary agent with Avitas Creative Management, which is one of the, the cool boutique uh, agencies in New York, after I had started working with these folks on their book ideas. And I had a contact there through one of the clients I was working with, uh, who was writing a book on augmented reality and computer vision, kind of a book about the future of sight and how the human eye hasn't evolved for millennia, but now technology is more or less going to evolve the eye for us. 
And I reached out to that author's agent and I was like, hey, this was a great idea. If you've got more folks that you want to send my way, uh, let me know. And we got on the phone and we just were having a general chit chat and he was asking me what I was doing. And I mentioned I was helping people write book proposals and doing developmental editing. And he asked me the kinds of clients I was doing it for. And I was like, oh, there's a disabled aspiring astronaut. And then I'm working with one of the um, head uh, emotionographers of the world who works with emotion AI. So the way that technology is changing how we emote and being able to recognize emotions. Um, and, you know, listed through some of the, the experts that I was I was working with. And he looked at me over the Zoom call and said, Georgia, have you ever thought about becoming an agent? And honestly, until that moment, I hadn't. Uh, and I honestly, at that moment, wasn't even quite sure what an agent was. <laughs> it's, that's funny. That's funny because I remember you telling me, this is a while ago, obviously, when this was on the cards, and um, I think my reply was, so so what does one do if one is a literary agent? <laughs> like it's um it, it, it I had a sense of what it was, but it, it's so funny that something that um not that they're generic terms, but what does it actually mean if it's um sort of lumped together and um and how does that translate into what you do as a um a skill set or a career? Yeah, totally. So publishing is so opaque. It is such an opaque industry compared to journalism where the entire point of journalism is for it to be transparent uh, and to try to make the world around you more transparent, um, which isn't to say that there isn't funny stuff going behind the scenes, but publishing is a very hard industry to crack, either as an author or as an editor or anyone working in it, because it's just a very small industry. So I feel just so, 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 so fortunate that um, right place, right Zoom call, uh, right skill set that I hadn't realized I'd been developing over a decade that was going to fit into this role. So what does an agent do? Uh, an agent is someone who works with authors on their ideas for books, creates book proposals, which are the thing that you use to sell a book. You very rarely write a book before you try to sell it. And then I develop the relationships with the editors of the publishing houses and connect those editors with the authors and try to sell their book ideas for them. So the way that you can kind of think about it is that the author is the one with, that, with the idea that will write the book. I'm the one that knows the market, knows the editors, knows what I think is going to sell and helps the author craft that book idea into the best concept it possibly can be. The editors are the ones that look at those fully formed ideas that agents send them and then choose which ones they want to bid on. And then you might have five, 10 editors bid on a project and the winning bid gets to be the editor who develops that project. And the, edit the editors work with the uh, editors work for the publishing houses, you know, Penguin, Random House, Simon & Schuster, Macmillan, um, uh, folk, like there's a bunch of different ones in Australia as well, Alan Unwin. And, but the editors themselves Authors don't go directly to editors and editors also don't develop book ideas. The agents are the ones that develop the book ideas. Okay. So the way that I saw this, so I, I didn't know that this was the way that the industry ran, but an, a managing partner at the agency saw my skill set and said, 
I think that it's a very applicable skill set. And the agency I'm with is also known for taking journalists and turning them into agents. Because what I did as an opinion editor was find interesting folks. Sometimes they are Fortune 500 CEOs. Sometimes they are totally unknown academics. But they have an interesting idea. I would help them craft that idea, but then synthesize it down to 1,500 words. Yeah. And then that article goes up online, goes in a magazine, hopefully goes viral. But the reality is, is that even if it goes really well, it's forgotten about 48 hours later. And now, and the best case scenario is that the article does so well that someone asks you to write a book about the article. And so now I'm translating that skill set of finding and nurturing talent and seeing ideas and being able to market and craft them for wide audiences. But rather than trying to synthesize those ideas into 1500 words, I get to say to people, do you want to see if you can build this out to a 70,000 word idea instead? And an idea that is going to have longevity and staying power and hopefully create a movement that will far outlive whatever a single article that you read on your phone, not holding onto a subway pole would do. I see. Okay. So, so in terms of what you can do, and thank you for laying that out. That's, um, that is absolutely fascinating and, um, certainly unique or niche, uh, depending on how you categorize it. Uh, I would imagine over the years through all these varying careers, and, and we'll, we'll touch on some of the specific roles that you've had over the sort of the last decade or so. Um, but apart from what you can do, have you reflected or continually reflected a lot on, you know, what you're exceptionally good at in terms of, you know, some people may label it a, a super skill or a superpower. Is there some um, some even deeper sort of intangible things that you do is it um is it a massive retention of memory is it um are, are you just reliable in terms of um communications with people have you sort of thought about this uh, what makes you you and and how you sort of almost manifest the opportunities for yourself oh gosh um I, I do not have the best memory. That is definitely not um, a true thing of me. I don't need a good memory because I'm incredibly organized. So don't need the memory because it just goes in the spreadsheet. I run my world through um, through spreadsheets. So I think that um, I'm one of those people who will, you know, will be four beers deep at a bar somewhere when that was a thing that we could do. And, you know, we would have you would say something that would spark off an idea and I always carry around a notepad that I'll write it down in and then I meticulously will then look through that notepad once a week and uh try to make sense of my chicken scratch and go and like look things up so I I I definitely am someone who I I follow up I forge relationships but I think that the so many of what people refer to as superpowers are often the more intangible stuff yeah of course I think that a lot of, you know, when people ask me, you know, how did, how, how can you spot a good idea? I, I can't, I can't tell you that. Uh, when people ask me, you know, how do you edit? What makes a good editor? How did, how did you know to reframe that paragraph or restructure that chapter? Um, I remember when I was the, the editor of Kinfolk magazine, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, I would have to try to train the interns who would ask me uh, about how to edit, which is very different from how to write. Uh, and I would just have them 
uh, sit behind me while I was editing articles and I would try to explain to them my thought process of why I'm deciding to move things around in different ways. But I think part of it's what I said before of understanding the order in which information should be given to folks in order to have the greatest resonance possible. Yeah, that makes sense. On a, um, I guess, a nerdy technical aspect. So what tools are you using? So you mentioned spreadsheets. Are you using other sort of um, digital tools or is it simply, uh, you know, pen and paper uh, translate into, you know, a Google sheet? How does it sort of work for you or work best for you, I should say? I I run my life through Evernote. Uh, Everyone tends to have that one killer app for them that, uh, that, runs their life if you're a um, overly organized for sure, yeah. person like me mine just happens to be Evernote um whenever people uh, I've definitely walked into different organizations and uh have set people up with the systems that I've created for myself but uh Evernote's across all my different devices uh different folders personal freelance uh agenting all sorts of things like that I then for day-to-day stuff tend to use Google Sheets and Google Docs uh, with a very anally retentive uh, system for the way that I name files so I can find things really easily, yeah. uh, not the folders, and then Airtable for my list of contacts. Uh, and because when you're an agent, you have to really keep track of all the different editors that you're speaking to and about which projects. So Airtable is a database uh, and then a, a networking management system I always recommend is called, it's now called uh, Contacts Plus because it was originally called, um, it wasn't skin contact, but it was something just a bit sexual. And I <laughs> always felt weird recommending it. And then thank the Lord that they renamed it Contacts Plus. But it's a fantastic um, uh, contact management system where you can, upload people's business cards directly into it. Um, If someone else has ever uploaded that person into the system, it can pull all those details for you. Um, You can create notes, you can organize folks. So if I'm ever like, oh, who is that person that I met at that conference in Lisbon in 2017 that mentioned that thing about um, synthetic biology, I could go into that system and look at the contacts from that era or that I uploaded in that time or search something like synthetic biology and can always find those folks. Because a, a big job, a big part of this job is knowing the right people, finding the right people and being able to make the connections between different folks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's cool. I couldn't resist asking about the tools um, thing because it's uh, a bit paralyzing, I guess, to rely on just simply memory. Um, but as I, as I said, I have a terrible memory because I rely on all these tools, maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> um, are you, is it exhausting? Uh, because you, you have a high, high conversation-based, engagement-based life, as in uh, not just simply with this role, but it, it's a recurring theme throughout, I guess, you know, the last, we say a decade, but, you know, it's, it's give or take um, years more. Yeah, is it exhausting for you or, or is it, uh, I guess, is the curiosity, you know, a, um, a real motivator for you in terms of new ideas, new information? Are you obsessed with uh, gaining new information um, and also meeting new people? Is that what sort of sustains your motivation? It's so interesting that you asked that because um, a lot of folks were watching what, when I started agenting, I had crippling 
crippling imposter syndrome for the first couple of months. Although I don't even think it was imposter syndrome because I actually was an imposter. I think that <laughs> imposter syndrome is <laughs> imposter syndrome is meant to be when you feel like an imposter but aren't. No, I was an imposter. I was I was this journalist like just happily wandering into this entirely new job, an entirely new field. Uh, but I I had I had to work through that and but once I sold my first couple of books and I, I sold them all very successfully, um, I, I started to gain a little bit of confidence. And I also, once I had a base level down of no longer being worried that I was going to suddenly screw some massive deal up, uh, I'm sure I still will do that at some stage, but not because I'm, <laughs> just because I'm human. Uh, yeah. That I suddenly had this crazy burst of energy where I was for a couple of weeks uh, working, you know, 12, 14 hour days every day for weeks. And I didn't get tired. I wasn't exhausted. My friends around me were starting to watch me, uh, uh, watching me and being a bit worried about me. I remember I went away upstate um, to this cabin that I'd been um, escaping to during during lockdown uh, with three of my best friends and it was my birthday weekend but then one of my deals was going really well and I had to organize all of these editor meetings and I on the day before my birthday or after my birthday I uh, had 11 back-to-back meetings um, with only 15 minutes in between each meeting. And, you know, my friends were coming upstairs into the room I'd sequestered myself in and with slices of cake, the cake that they had baked me that I wasn't having time to eat. Um, and I, I'm someone who, when, when I've got something new to learn, I obsessively want to just, uh, lose myself in it. And I recognize that's not always the most healthy of things but it has been healthy when it's been in lockdown. Um, but I think that that was also just a bit of a, now that I'm understanding the industry more and I've got over that initial uh, totally frantic, crazed curiosity hump, I'm looking forward to being back in Australia now and refocusing myself on friends and family a bit. I, I think that I'm not someone who always has balance in the day to day but I do have balance over time. And I think that different people are different in that way. Um, uh, uh, as, as an aside, a 2020 related aside of one of the biggest things I feel that I learned was that, you know, we, we can't predict what's going to happen. And as you might be able to tell from all the different organizational apps that I told you about, I try to control the future. I, I really, like knowing what's ahead of me. I want to have the biggest influence over my the direction I go in as possible. But 2020 took a lot of that away from me. And so I realized that planning was futile. And for a long time, I tried to stop planning. I tried to be more spontaneous. I tried to mix up my life in all of these ways that just ultimately didn't really feel like me. And then I realized that I'm... Georgia, my friends called me spreadsheet. Like I'm not going to, 
I didn't, know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's great. Oh, there's, there's my, my friend's having Thanksgiving dinner right now. Um, like keep on just re- like <laughs> making fake spreadsheets to make me feel like I'm there with them in Thanksgiving. Because that's what I'd be doing. I'd be creating a, a, a spreadsheet for Thanksgiving. Um, but I realized that I can't stop my natural inc- inclination to plan and organize. What I can do is try to rid myself of the desire for those plans to go to plan. I can't yeah. stop myself planning, but I can stop me caring about the result, the impact of that plan. So it's a way that I've kind of become more balanced, uh, I guess, is I haven't changed what is an inherently very real part of me, but I've taken the judgment off it if that makes sense. Yeah, well, that, that's a brilliant um, uh, explanation of yourself. I, I'd imagine you've sort of thought about this um, quite deeply for quite some time, but it's, um, yeah, I thought, I thought you expressed it really well, actually. So um, I really like that. I actually took some things, um, yeah, relating to my personal circumstances with from that. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm conscious of that certain people listening to the program would, would not be exposed to, I guess, your background or understand uh, a lot of your career journey. We've almost flipped the um, the narrative because sometimes with the podcast project, we dive into, you know, the, you know, the relatively linear career path um, immediately. So let's, let's go into, um, you know, some of the roles or, or projects that you've been involved with over time. And, um, you know, obviously you've got your website, you've sort of comprehensively laid out in there a number of the things, which is so helpful because uh, a lot of other people I, um, I may interview, um, I don't know a lot about what they've done. So I really have to dig into the recesses of the internet to um, hopefully unpack it and then just see what happens during the conversation. You've, well, well, you've yeah, done well, quite a few things. Sorry, I cut you off. Oh, guys, I was going to say, I think that I wouldn't be very good at my job if my own website didn't illustrate the fact that I was very good at synthesizing information even about myself. Truth. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> but can I say, it, it's also, it's um, it's certainly a good expression to know that you, you marry or balance, you know, this incredibly creative and curious sort of aspect, well, fundamental theme running through your life with also this um you know predisposition towards um order yeah order yeah yeah order and it's like it's this dichotomy at play which um you know fundamentally makes up your your personality at large which i think is really cool and sort of um explains you a bit better i guess how you tick (laughs) so what you do you've been involved in ideas ideas at large right and it's crossed a number of aspects i see that you've done a huge amount of obviously there's the in the rhythm form you've been involved in um, numerous events and speaking gigs as well which is all laid out on your website uh speaking gigs at um occasions such as the moth uh creative mornings new york love creative mornings house of beautiful business singularity university uh a couple of minor meetups called uh the world economic forum and the united nations general assembly small neighborhood meetups you know on the corner um so tell us about um this public facing engagement aspect of your life where you talk about big ideas and you're either steering conversations or projecting them yourself. Tell us about that part of your, your world. Cause I obviously, I love the um, event and engagement aspect, um, which is a big part of my life. Totally. So it was, I was actually chatting to someone about this yesterday about how 
the big plans that we had up for ourselves in 2020 and then how you feel about when those plans didn't go to plan because I've been public speaking for a long time. I'm a gregarious type A extrovert. Uh, so people often assume that I love being on a stage, but that's actually not true. I, I get pretty bad stage fright, uh, especially if there's a camera on me, I totally clam up. And I'm someone who I love having conversations and that's what I started to edge my public facing role towards. I, I love moderating. I love bringing the best ideas out of other people rather than projecting my own ideas. But for a long time, people have been, were pushing me to get on the stage more myself and, you know, have my, say, say my own thoughts rather than helping people organize theirs. And so 2020, I was going to have my my big coming out, if you will, of my stage career. I was going to be main stage at South by um, talking right. about um, speculative futures and the future of storytelling. And I, you know, spent uh, weeks and weeks and weeks organizing this talk with um, a, a, a friend of mine. We were uh, tag teaming it and but something just didn't quite feel right about it to me. Um, about being up on stage myself with my own ideas and my own concepts rather than talking about others. And so when South by got canceled, of course, my initial feeling was total dejection. When, when it got canceled, we had the, the most likes, the most um, RSVPs for the final Friday. Um, and then after I got over that, the next thing that overcame me was relief. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. I think relief is a really important, powerful telling emotion. I think that it is, you know, when you make a decision and relief comes over you, you know that it was the right one. And it made me realize that although, yes, I've done some very fancy things, my role isn't on the stage. My, I really truly see myself as you know, the, the uh, Bette Midler, wind beneath your wings kind of aspect of, you know, not, not even, you know, I started my career as a reporter, as a journalist, and then I moved into editing. And again, it's not having my own name on an article. I want to help that author craft the best article as possible. Um, now that I'm an agent, we are the, the most invisible part of the entire industry. No one knows our names in the public. And I think that's also been a big reckoning thing with me this year has of, you know, there are the fancy things that you put on your resume, but they don't really feel uh, that true to who I am as a person. Mm. And just because I might be an outgoing uh, leadership type personality, that doesn't mean that I need to do what people expect of me and spend time on stages. So, you know, maybe the reason why I feel more comfortable with podcasts is uh, that, you know, it's just us having a chin wag. Yeah, that's uh, right. And I'm trying as hard as I can this entire time not to ask you any questions. I've done really well so far. You've done pretty good. I don't think there's been any question marks in any anything you've communicated back to me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but by all means, like, go for it. I don't want to sort of um, hold you back from your, you know, natural proclivity, but it's um, it's... I find it quite ironic, uh, you know, to be um, to be putting yourself in this position, being that you would uh, naturally find yourself asking these really curious questions of people. And now, um, I guess that's the fundamental, 
uh, purpose of the the podcast project, which is to um, allow people to reflect on their lives a little bit, even though you know it's packaged up. You have like you yourself, you have a website, you have your your sort of portfolio of stuff. You can you know glance at it at any time, but to think about um, formulating some responses in this type of forum. Um, yeah, really makes you think, I guess, or making the presumption that it makes you think about what this all means. I think that it's just what you asked before about the the little moments during my my crazy months in New York this year. The not not the big overarching sweeping statements, but those little moments of connection. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's what podcasts and live events really really get to. When I left Quartz in 2019 and I had started to work on book projects on the side and I, the other area that I was working within was trying to think of ways that you could have large audiences interact with ideas in a more substantial way. And I, I feel that one of the quickest ways, or not one of, the quickest way to change someone's mind is in a face-to-face conversation. Uh, that that is the the optimal way to really interrogate ideas. Uh, the example that always pops to mind with this is the Me Too movement. Actually, of nothing is going to change if it's a bunch of women in a room talking to other women. Women in a room talking to men is the next best thing. But in order to really change cultural practices what the movement needed and eventually got was men talking to men. And I feel that that is one of the the elements of COVID and the, and the lockdown. That's been a really interesting dichotomy because I think that we feel more separated from each other than ever before, because we're spending so little time in rooms with each other, but also that barrier has broken down for the kinds of people that you would have a conversation with nowadays. And, you know, I, I swear that I spoke to my family more this year uh, via Zoom than what I uh, probably would have if I was like back in, uh, back in Melbourne, surrounded by them all. I think that it's both broken down barriers um, and has built some new ones back up again. But I do think there are small parts of this pandemic that will yeah interesting so you've sort of um yeah you've had that sort of uh intense uh neighborhood community connection type of experience and then also this sort of i guess heightened though digital or virtual um connection with your family um which is cool Uh, i like that there's sort of um there's definitely some things to you know to grasp onto as highly positive in in what has overwhelmingly been uh either branded as negative or challenging, um, whichever way you look at it, but it's um, uh, certainly an emotionally taxing year. And I think, um, yeah, those sort of connections are incredibly important. Let's, let's talk, let alone the fact, Christ, you're in lockdown. <laughs> like, let's not forget that. But that's a, we could talk about that um, endlessly. Let's, I, just, um, I, just, I got the knock on my door for uh, uh, announcing that lunch is outside my door um, a couple of minutes ago. Um, I'm going to have like a Pavlovian response mechanism to door knocking for the rest of my life because it's just going to be <laughs> arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, uh, I got this vivid image of something that happens in the office, um, the US version one time when it comes to Pavlovian response. That's right. We'll talk about that another time. Um, 
let's let's talk about um so we've we've mentioned some of the roles that you've been involved in so ideas editor at quartz um editor at kinfolk uh, you've been involved in frankie um and then you know you were talking about your your current status in terms of a, a literary agent there's probably some delineation between them i, I read an article that you wrote in um in a, a melbourne produced and globally distributed um tech culture magazine called Offscreen, which is incredible and one of my absolute favorites. But you talked uh, in there, uh, you referred to yourself as a recovering lifestyle journalist. So rather than um, miss, you know, all the little bits in there, um, I'm going to attempt to sort of, I guess, delineate between the previous sort of lifestyle world you lived in and then your movement into technology-focused conversations, so blockchain, quantum computing, you know, very, very high-concept, highly technical stuff. So what was sort of the catalyst for making that change and what had you been doing sort of on either side of that time? It's an interesting question because there is definitely a delineation, as as you say, but I also see them as, you know, two intersecting Venn diagrams in in my life. Yeah. But the funny part about the the oddness of my career, if you uh, if you knew me from when I was the editor of Kinfolk, you probably have no idea what a lot of people don't have, know what Quartz is or wouldn't know that I was part of a nuclear weapons non-proliferation uh, fellowship or, you know, part of a quantum computing council. But yeah. if you met me in the past five years where I've really engaged with my uh, nerdy proclivities, you probably don't have any idea what Kinfolk is. So it's it's funny to have a, a career that to me has made sense, but to a lot of other folks, you end up in these kind of binary juxtapositions. But uh, the for me, uh, I liked it the way that you kind of said it before of just the creative part of me and the, the more organized part of me, I guess. I was very fortunate to grow up uh, with very eccentric creative parents and I loved theater as a kid. My parents collected art. Um, they were in the fashion world. And I, even though I was always very academic, very, very nerdy, I just fell into doing music journalism when I was 18. And then my first uh, proper job was with Frankie magazine. And then everything just kind of flowed on from there. And, you know, I look up five, six years later and I'm in New York freelancing for interview and fader and places like that and get the the door knock from Kinfolk, which back then was a, a little magazine, you know, only circulating about 20,000 copies. Um, and they were looking for their first editor and I had come uh, recommended to them. Um, I had no idea how to edit a magazine. I remember. <laughs> Cool. I had no idea. Um, I remember calling up uh, Joe, Joe Walker, who I mentioned before, the editor of Kinfolk, and yeah. was like, Joe, I, I can't say yes. I'd like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw it up. I'm going to send them into the ground. You know, I was 23. Um, I don't think they knew how old I was, but at 23, and they were about to give me the reins of a magazine. And um, I remember her just saying, like, Georgia, I, I took over uh, Frankie magazine when I was 29. And just think, if you were a man, you would not even be thinking twice about saying yes. Mm. And I was just like, damn, truth, Joe. And uh, I went over and I was, you know, uh, helped create the team that grew Frankie, uh, that grew Kinfolk magazine into what it, what it became. 
and I'm incredibly proud of the work that I I, I did at Kinfolk, um, and the the culture that we we spoke to and the content that we created. Uh, but after three years, Kinfolk was such a ubiquitous presence in the lifestyle space that Kinfolk really leads before you do when people meet you and people would have these preconceptions about what I should be like or would be like, which was often this hyper wholesome, super sweet, uh, linen wearing, slow lifestyle, non-digital person. Um, when in reality, I'm a sweary, colorful Australian um, who was teaching myself particle physics and was obsessed with Elon Musk at the time. And I just got a bit frustrated that people only wanted to talk to me about Scandinavian lighting designers. And I realized that I'd spent the first decade of my career, although I was incredibly proud of what I had done, I'd spent the first decade only satisfying one part of my personality. And I wanted to better align the geeky parts of my sensibility with what I was doing. Yeah. And so much to everyone's surprise, including my own, I left Kinfolk right at the height of um, the, the craze and moved back to New York and moved into nerdy online journalism. And I was so fortunate to wind up at Quartz. Um, I interviewed with all the usual suspects you would expect, but I'm so glad that I wound up at Quartz because they were such a quirky creative bunch who um, were known for their journalism uh, to take uh, strange uh, data visualizations routes into what they were doing and um, taking a much more global perspective than a typical American perspective. And what I did there was I got to tell the human stories behind emerging science and technology and futurism, because at the time when I got there at 2016, um, we didn't know that Facebook was going to ruin democracy. We didn't um, we didn't understand uh, the ethical implications of you know DNA editing technologies like CRISPR, and we were instead obsessed with just what these things were and how they worked, rather than the effect they, that they had on real people. Um, I always use the example of blockchain of when, you know, that became a buzzword and everyone just was so obsessed with trying to work out what it is and how it worked. And I often said, do you understand how your phone works? Do you understand what happens when you send an email? Like some people do, but most don't. And it doesn't matter. What matters is the way that it can uh, help or hinder your life. And so I really took this personal edge and narrative driven direction when talking about emerging science and technology topics and started to make a name for myself doing that. And that's when people would start to come to me directly being like, I've got this new cryptocurrency concept that is based off biomimicry and I need help to explain it to a wide audience. And, um, you know, those kinds of things started happening to me and I gained a reputation for being the person that you would come to if you needed to make a dense academic topic understandable. So I can see the uh, the delineation, if you will, and how I wound up from one end to the other. But uh, it, I know it does surprise people when they get to know me and then I suddenly will one day after knowing them for six months drop the kinfolk thing and um, their jaws drop, but, uh, <laughs> you know, people contain multitudes, Gaz. 
Well, it's, yeah, exactly. And look, you know, the fundamental focus within the podcast project is unconventional career paths. And then, of course, projects that we get wrapped up in. You were talking before about, um, you know, that you, you felt the imposter syndrome when you walked into the room in the um, uh, literary agent context. But, you know, if, if uh, organizations or companies hire the same people continuously, well, then you're just going to keep having the same types of people, aren't you? And so diversity of thought is... Um, incredibly important and I guess uh yeah not so much purely about how surprising it is that you went from kinfolk into the um the technology realm so to speak but that you carried this creative background into the technology realm is probably what I sort of see as the real positive within there would you say that that was a long-winded uh, statement but I'm getting to the point of some semblance of a question which is do you think that um, that as you moved into, say, this quartz realm, that um, the fact that it probably through the conversations invited, I'm presuming potentially a bit more debate, a bit more vigorous debate or opinion based that you were drawn also to that world because of that fact? Because I've seen some of the articles that you've been publishing, even sort of um, uh, retorts by leading technologists to um, – opinion pieces that have been sent in and that you've published in the past so do you think you were predisposed towards this new world where people were happy to disagree just a little bit yeah and I, I feel that I I was uh, um, a debater when I was in high school and I was then drawn to opinion journalism because I again liked trying to present both sides and interrogate both sides even if only to just further help me affirm what I personally believe and then when I uh, left Quartz, one of the other jobs that I did was that I was a consulting producer for a debate series called Intelligence Squared, where um, there was a, um, a little editorial team um, and the two main producers, it was my, myself and um, I'm, I'm a liberal and my co-producer was a conservative and getting to produce these debates with her where a lot of my friends who when they found out that I was working for Intelligence Squared maybe assumed it was a lefty organization but I I think that you know when you do try to take a uh, a non-partisan approach to these topics if you do a really good job of it then people will feel that the content is for them and will then assume that uh, it is in line with their political uh, their political beliefs, but, uh, that's not always the case. And I think that when you can really truly present both sides of an argument correctly, um, and people can see themselves reflected in that in an honest way, that's the kind of debate environment that I, I really hope to uh, create and what I hope that we created with intelligence squared. Very cool. Yeah. I, you know, I got involved in debating when I was younger as well. And um, all right, all right, one second, the door just knocked. Go for I it, have to go uh, get the door. <laughs> I just got my lunch. It's a lovely looking Nishwa salad. And I have a uh, present from my great aunt and uncle there. So I'm sorry that you can't unbox my lunch uh, with me, my lovely um, Sydney hotel lockdown lunch experience. <laughs> Fair enough. Ha, ha, ha.
Um, all right. Well, look, we're, we're going to get to the end of time. I was uh, saying that I um, I did debating when I was younger. You know, I I, um, I actually did like it. I think I just tried to justify to myself that it was too nerdy and then I shouldn't be involved in it. But, you know, in hindsight, I wish I'd gotten more involved in it and, um, you know, would love to, would love to um, have a hand in doing something like that in the near future. Oh, embrace, embrace the inner nerd. Like I, I, I feel that the, uh, the one of the reasons why I loved working on the debate series, the live debate series, uh, which was then also a podcast, is that it really forced you to reckon with the other side's ideas in a way that doesn't happen with online news journalism. Yeah. Because ostensibly will either go to a live debate or be looking through your podcast app and see a debate motion and already have an opinion on it. And so then you will want to reinforce your opinion by listening to the debate and listening to someone um, say all the views you agree with. But because it's a debate, you have to listen to the other person's side. You can't fast forward um, to, uh, to only hear what you want to hear. And so the thing I loved about Intelligence Squared is that the winners of the debate were not the side that had the most, um, that the audience voted that they agreed with the most. Instead, it was the side that swayed the most Shit. people's opinions. Yeah, so yeah. people would um, vote before the debate if they agreed, disagreed, or were neutral on the motion. Um, and then they, the debate would happen and then they would re-vote. And the winner was who had convinced the most people in the audience to come to their side. And so that really truly is engaging with other people's ideas and opinions rather than just reinforcing your own. And mm. I think that we need more formats out there in which the public can learn in that way. Yeah, I would love to see that, um, particularly in light of, you know, what's occurred this year or what we've observed or how we've observed the, you know, the media playing a role in, you know, a lot of the circumstances for this year. You know, if I'm referencing Melbourne where um, I'm based, I would love to see that, um, you know, certainly in that in-person context when we return to an events capacity. You know, on that note, um, do you foresee being back in Australia in the future um, you know, running these debates in, in uh, Melbourne potentially, but do you see yourself returning to Australia sometime in the nearish future or do you think it's quite a while away before um, you do that? If 2020 taught us anything, it's not to plan for anything. True. Uh, I, <laughs> I have been considering moving back home for quite a while. If I'm, if I'm uh, being honest with myself, I was fairly sure I was going to do it this year. And then the pandemic kind of took everything in a different direction. But um, I know that Georgia is going to plan. She is going to want to create a spreadsheet for this. And there are definitely spreadsheets with this plan in it, but that plan doesn't have to go to plan. I think the next big thing for me is to just um, spend a couple of months here right now, after I get out of this hotel room um, in lovely COVID free Australian summer. um, And just to kind of see if America sorts itself out. Can yeah. can we get the dumpster fire out? Can we uh, slow the crane cra- uh, the train crash? We'll we'll just have to see. There are so many wonderful parts about that country, um, but there are also so many problems with it. And I think that the next year or so is going to tell us if 
America is going to maintain its cultural and political, you know, hold on the world. And I think that the downfall of America might mean that others have more room to rise up. And I think that'll only be positive. Maybe it'll be Australia. Who knows? True, true. Uh, one added benefit will be that you can obviously, you know, physically reconnect with your family, which is a really cool aspect. But, you know, personally, I think one big priority for you should be to extract a very large um, sponsorship deal from Evernote because you're obviously singing their praises globally <laughs> and they should be goddamn paying you for that. <laughs> Sponcon, hashtag. Uh, no, not <laughs> um, Look, we're going to round out the chat now because obviously we, we could just keep talking forever, honestly. We're, we're both, we both talk. We talk and talk for a living and so otherwise we just simply won't stop. But um, this, this is sort of an open question um, and it's around how you think you'll, you'll perceive this year. Uh, I'm, what I'm basically trying to ask is um, – are you still associating your thoughts with what's sort of happened through this year? An incredibly emotionally taxing one, which you've been immersed in a lot of very unreal or unrealistic sort of circumstances. Do you think that um, you, what do you think you will reflect upon this year as from a positive experience as opposed to um, a series of confronting ones? I think it's untethering ourselves from the expectations of the future and learning to be more with ourselves in the present because this year taught us that we cannot control the future. Try as we might with as many spreadsheets as we create and conversations we have and dreams that we hope to fulfill. But the thing that we can control is our presence right here in this moment. So I'm trying to get better at that and i hope that though there has been so much pain this year that the worlds have a bit of a collective reset for that too yeah perfect (laughs) perfectly expressed look i want to thank you so much for um being part of the chat today and obviously can't wait to catch up with you in person in melbourne when you eventually land here um i am going to do a shout out for your social media um, particularly your Instagram, which is at Georgia Francis King. Francis is F-R-A-N-C-E-S. Um, and I think you're also on Twitter, Georgia Francis K. Um, but look, I'm really excited to be, for you to be back in town and obviously to get out of lockdown, but um, really excited to see where you take this next career um, trajectory and, and, you know, obviously bring in your own influence and experience into this role, I think is going to be, you know, highly exciting and, and obviously excitable for you too. I can't wait to see what's going to happen next either. Trying to untether myself from that even. So you and I both. True. All right. Well, thanks again. And we'll, we'll catch you really soon, but um, really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks. So thanks for listening to the chat with George Francis King for this episode 19 of A Lot To Say podcast. Um, a strange circumstance, I know. Uh, it's my first uh, guest I've interviewed in quarantine, I guess. But um, I really appreciate her taking the time. And obviously, um, in such a strange circumstance, I, I'd imagine um, she just wanted to be uh, distracted in some some way, shape or form. Thankfully, she's a, she's out by now. She's making her way down the coast back to Melbourne and, um, and uh, we'll be here for the the near future, um, hanging out with family after, you know, what I can only imagine is quite a tough year. Um, as I mentioned, just, uh, ending the conversation, you can follow Georgia on the social medias on, 
uh, Instagram, it's at Georgia Francis King. And on Twitter, it is at Georgia Francis K. Um, music on the podcast is by my band Bateman. Um, we sound nothing like what's uh, on tape, but that's okay. Um, dive into Bandcamp if you want to hear more. But apart from that, my name's Gaz Williams. It's been a pleasure to have you, and we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.